Happy Thanksgiving week here in the U.S. We hope that you have your turkey thawing, place cards pinned, and are ready to enjoy family and friends on Thursday. Kim and I are taking a much-needed break this week to get all of our preparations in order as well. But we didn't want to leave you without some culinary inspiration. So we dug into the As We Eat archives and decided to share one of the episodes from our first season that we think's absolutely appropriate for this week. Episode 32, Revisiting Pies, Desperation, Thrift, and Brand Campaigns. Enjoy! We're revisiting pies today. About this time last year, we talked about crazy labels, cockney rhyming slang, and Greek melons in our first pie episode. I learned so much in that episode, and I realized, too, how little we know about all these really great pie traditions. And so I think it's really exciting to have an opportunity to revisit the idea of pies. And I'm really excited to make this an annual tradition now. So get ready for more fun. In today's episode, we'll dish on an American classic that originated with a fictional character and discover how a bird may have had a role etymologically in the word pie. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm great as well. I'm sitting in our van listening to the rain. So if you hear some pitter patter in the background, it's the rain. But yeah, just doing great. That's so good to hear. I love this time of year because you're starting to feel that snap of fall and mm. you just know what's coming. It's pumpkins and cookies and pies and all kinds of delicious fun things for the holidays and celebrating being together and the, the wonderful meals that we have in the autumn and the fall. Yeah, we are. We're totally moving into that holiday season. And like you said, means pies will soon be adorning tables across the country. Yes. Yeah. Hooray for pie. Yay for pies. So I found some interesting information about pie. I'm so excited. Oh, good. I would love to share. Would you please? Yes. I can't wait. I can't wait. Tell me now. Tell me now. <laughs> so there's some speculation about the origins of the word pie that goes something like this. It may have come from the name of a bird who's notorious for collecting and scavenging bits and bobs. The magpie. Shortened oh. to pie. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the thought is that as this bird collects all of these variety of things, so does the crust of a pie. That's true. Yeah. I don't know whether or not it's true, but what I love about this theory, this concept, this thought, is that although pies can be opulent and rich, they're also a medium that is ensconced in creativity and necessity and culture and adaptation. We here in the U.S. have a saying, as American as apple pie. And although we do have a strong apple culture here, the pie was not something that was created in the U.S. 
It was our English ancestors that brought it over with them. And even though the pie was a really favored dish by the English, the colonists had a much more practical and in some cases a necessary application for pie. Pies were favored by the colonial women because they used far less flour than bread and it wasn't necessary to have a brick oven, something that was very expensive and most households didn't have. So it didn't require this brick oven to cook them. And they were also a great way to stretch foods. When you're running short on provisions, being able to feed as many hungry mouths as possible wasn't only really important, it was a necessity. And here's a fun fact. We got our traditional round pie and pie pan because of these colonial women. They used round shallow pans when they were baking them to literally cut corners <laughs> and stretch the ingredients. Wow. Yeah. As the colonists moved through the country, and I'm specifically talking about American pies right now, this dish really had to evolve. So it's this adaptation that you're seeing as these colonists are moving throughout the country from north to south, east to west. But they would use regional ingredients that were available to them because you really couldn't, in a lot of cases, carry things from one region to another because you didn't have refrigeration. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't necessarily cultivate some of those things as you moved across the country. So they started using what was available. Pies were sweetened with maple syrup in the northern states. And when blueberries were plentiful in Maine specifically, they would be used. Settlers in Florida took advantage of citrus crops. And I think you're going to talk about a citrus pie. I am. And the Midwestern pies boasted cream and cheese. So you get a lot of these custard-based pies. And French immigrants in New Orleans baked pecan pies or pecan, whichever, I'm not sure. I'm sure we'll get corrected. After they were introduced to these nuts by the Native Americans. And so you can see how these regional specialties developed in the pie culture. Honestly, you could really tell the history of America through pies, which maybe we'll have to do in our next annual episode next year. Mm -hmm. And so I probably don't really need to say this, but pies were really popular in early American culture. In some cases, they were served after every evening meal, which helped to really cement the pie culture here in the States. And then you started to see these contests, especially at county fairs. I find it really interesting that we didn't talk about pies in our fair food episode. So. Oh, that's true. Yeah. We're going to have to circle back and do another episode that features those home crafts at the fair. One of my favorite things to do is to go look at all the range and the preserves and the pies. I love it. Yep. People are so creative. Speaking of creativity, these women were able to express their creativity and be seen and judged. Now, I'm not a really big mm. fan of food being judged. I don't like the competitiveness around food. I mm -hmm. think that there's too much anyway. But this type of adjudication created this validation and authority for these women. Yeah. So they were able to really come into themselves through these types of contests. And it isn't any wonder that some of these women were really remembered by the types of pies that they made. And I know when I think of my first best friend's mom, the first thing that comes to mind for me is her huckleberry pie. 
followed very closely by what a wonderful human being she is. But I, <laughs> nobody can make a huckleberry pie mm-hmm. like Carol can. This creativity that was being expressed really was put to the test during off-seasons, war mm-hmm. rationing, and the Great mm-hmm. Depression. And this is where we get this category of pies called make-do or desperation pies that right now has really moved into this realm of hipness. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but these pies seem to be created out of thin air in some cases, or hydrogen oxygen in the case of water pie. And yes, there is a pie called the water pie. We'll uh, (laughs) talk a little bit more about that on the website. And in our social media, we'll share some more information about the water pie. But during off seasons, because we used to eat seasonally, right? If you wanted a lemon meringue pie, and you didn't have lemons, then you'd use vinegar. If Mm -hmm. you had a hankering for an apple pie, but the apples weren't ripe, you could replace them with green tomatoes. Or even in the case of crop failure or blights, Mm. you could, as with the pecan crop, you could replace that with oatmeal. And even our current mincemeat pie is a result Mm -hmm. of war rationing when women needed to learn to cook without meat. And there's a very popular pie in England called the Woolton pie, which I read in some articles was credited for winning the war, but essentially it was a vegetarian pie. It took advantage of root vegetables. It had mashed potatoes in it and Uh it was made with whole wheat flour, but it was credited for winning the war, which, you know, obviously that's a little bit of a over-exaggeration, but it was so important during those war times that these women were able to create these dishes. And we've talked about this before. We talked about it in our Betty Crocker episode how mm-hmm. important it was to be able to make do with what you had. And I think mm-hmm. for these women and these pies, it's such an example of what you can do to make do and feed your families. Yeah, the ingenuity. And, and also what's occurring to me as we're discussing this too, is that sense too of keeping some semblance of normalcy. Right. You know, one might say, well, if you can't make pie, then why would you try to have some pie without the ingredients that you would make it with. And it's because sometimes the ritual is as important as the actual item itself. Absolutely. That's a really great point, because as I mentioned, a a lot of times you had pie after your meal every day. Then you get into the depression, you get into the wars and things are already non-normal. And being Mm -hmm. able to set that pie on the table and create at least a little sense of normalcy, I think was Mm -hmm. really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look how important, look how important sourdough bread ended up being during the pandemic. I think we have some great object lessons in how important it is to find those touch points when things around you are not as they should be, or as you expect them to be, to find those moments of comfort. And Mm -hmm. for a lot of people that was sourdough bread, there's Plenty of other people for whom they just baking took on new dimensions, things that they would have bought from the store. We started making at home because not so much maybe out of the physical necessity of the things not being available, but because it helped us feel grounded and normal. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I just, yeah. Hmm. How fascinating. Yeah. And then just to circle back to that 
quip that I quoted, I kind of like alliterations at the beginning. (laughs) I do. I do too. This is why we're friends. (laughs) According to the Smithsonian Magazine, this saying resulted from a campaign for men's suits. It read, new let suits that are as American as apple pie. Mm. By World War II, this notion was cemented and GIs would tell journalists that they were fighting for mom and apple pie, which gave mm-hmm. rise to the saying, as American as apple pie. Wow. Yeah. That does, that does give it a new dimension. I, hadn't, I equally grew up hearing the American as apple pie phrase. I hadn't thought about it in this context of having these symbols that are just really important. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, that's really interesting. I find that it was really interesting that it was based upon campaigns. We talked about so much about food campaigns, but this campaign was for men's suit. And what came out of that was this saying as American as apple pie. I don't know if there's any other examples of that type of a a campaign that has resulted in a food related quote. Well, nothing's coming to mind. I'll mull this one over. (laughs) Horror, 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 speaking of apples. (laughs) You ready? I'm ready. ready. What did you? Yeah. What did tell me what you learned about pies? Well, you know, last time we talked about pies, I got crazy excited as I do about treacle tart (laughs) and in particular about Lyle's golden syrup and the dead lion being part of the world's oldest brand. No surprise today. I'm equally as crazy excited to talk about two of my most favorite pies, notably lemon meringue and Mm. key lime. Mm. I love the citrus. Love it. So as John F. Mariani says in the Encyclopedia of American Food and Drink, quote, lemon meringue pie made with lemon curd and topped with meringue has been a favorite American dessert since the 19th century, end quote. I totally agree. But if you put a bunch of pies on the table in front of me and lemon meringue is one of them, chances are pretty good I'm going to go for a lemon meringue. There's something about the creamy, tart, it hits all the senses. It's just, it's it's delicious It absolutely does. That is actually my birthday cake is lemon meringue pie. Snaps, good to know. Yeah. And you know, the, the funny thing about this pie, these two pies, is that they do actually build on this sense of ingenuity and pivoting and using what you've got. So I'm excited to tell you so much more about this. But I'm going to start off with some meringue history, mm. or as the French say, le trivia. And I'm kidding. They don't say it oh. like that. Oh. I know, wouldn't that be rad though? But no, no, no. not so much. So basically there are th- essentially three kinds of meringue. And I just want to get this clear because there's the French meringue, which is essentially egg whites whipped with castor sugar. There's Italian meringue, which is egg whites whipped with hot sugar syrup. There's Swiss, my mouth is trying to water. Swiss meringue, which is egg whites whipped over a bon marie or basically a hot water bath. And one origin story of Meringue is that it was invented in the Swiss village of Meringen, hence the word meringue, and improved upon by Italian chef Gasparini at the end of the 17th century. The Oxford Companion to Food by Alan Davidson has this on meringue, which I am quoting because I actually love the way he wrote this. Quote, meringue, an airy, crisp confection of beaten egg white and sugar, where it probably entered French from German as did many other French words ending in I-N-G-U-E. It first appeared in print in Massiello, circa 1691, although earlier recipes for the same thing, but without the name, have been published. 
The name traveled to England almost at once and first appeared in print there in 1706. Seems to have been only in the 16th century that European cooks discovered that being egg whites, e.g. with a whisk of birch twigs, in the absence of any better implement, produced an attractive foam. At first, the technique was used to make a simple uncooked dish called snow, made from egg white and cream. However, cooking such a foam would not have resulted in meringue, or any fat in the mixture, as represented by the cream, prevents the egg whites from taking on the proper texture. When true meringue made its appearance in the 17th century, it still lacked its name, and was often called sugar puff. Hmm. Quote. I, I wonder who it was that took a birch twig and just started beating egg whites. <laughs> beating egg whites. <laughs> there was, oh gosh, there was also a, a reference to how you were to slightly rasp the lemon for your dish with your sugar cone. In absence of like basically instead of grating oh. lemon rind, I was trying to read up on lemon custard and, and lemon curd and, and curd itself deserves its own treatment. So anyway, I digress. So Meringue's association with fruit pies is often attributed to Menon, a 18th century French cook whose works were printed anonymously. So this is a nom de plume or a pseudonym. In the 1739 Nouveau Traite de la Cuisine, or in English, A New Treaty of the Kitchen, there appears a receipt for pomme meringues which is basically a baked applesauce or apple butter type dish that is flavored with citron or lemon and then topped with this fluffy egg meringue. Now, the story could have just stopped there, except that we, as human beings, we love this joyful taste of citron or lemon. And we really have to credit today's version of lemon meringue to Protestant Quakers who developed lemon curd or lemon custard in England And that recipe traveled with them to North America circa 1774. So what we're talking about as a lemon meringue pie is effectively a lemon curd or lemon custard. And I'm using the terms interchangeably right now within a pie shell and then again topped with meringue. So some food historians say that our version, our current day version of lemon meringue using lemon curd was actually developed by Elizabeth Cohn Goodfellow. And she was a Philadelphia pastry chef in 1806. She also ran like a little bit of a cooking school Ooh. as well. The story also goes that she never wrote down any of her recipes, but that her students faithfully did this on her behalf. Much like Socrates was ultimately made famous by Plato. So she exists in this sort of echo version. The story of Goodfell's invention of lemon custard pie topped with ring was popularized by her student Eliza Leslie, who wrote her own cookbook in which she included a recipe for lemon meringue pie. And she said that it was invented by Goodfell because one day she had made a lot of lemon custard, which uses egg yolks and butter. She had all these egg whites left over. She didn't want to waste them. And so she made a meringue and she used that to top her famous lemon custard pies, thus creating the lemon meringue pie. This delicious pie wasn't really specifically called lemon meringue for a long time. According to our favorite website, Food Timeline, quote, many 17th and 18th century cookbooks contain recipes for lemon custard pudding, sometimes served in a puff paste base, pies and tarts. These are often topped with pulverized sugar. It's not until the middle of the 19th century we find recipes that would produce lemon meringue pie, end quote. And what I also love is that, you know, she often gives us historical recipes to browse through. These are some of my favorites. I really like this 1847 recipe for, quote, meringue pie, end quote, from Mrs. Crowen's American Ladies Cookbook. 
and that's Mrs. T.J. Crowen, for those keeping track at home. And she wrote, This may be made by adding to a nicely made and baked tart a nice whip made as follows. To the white of a fresh egg, add two tablespoons of finely pulverized white sugar. Flavor with lemon, vanilla, or any other flavor which may be liked. Whip the same as for kisses, which I don't know what you're referring to, but I, I'm like intrigued by this. And then with a knife, lay it at the top of the tart and whip it nicely off at the edges, and then set into an oven and close for a few minutes until it's delicately browned. And then this recipe for lemon meringue pie, written as lemon meringue pie, was published in an edition of the American Agriculturalist in 1869, and it's incredibly simple. One lemon grated, one cup of sugar, one cup of milk, one tablespoon of flour, the yolks of three eggs. And then to make the meringue, take the whites of the three eggs and half of a cup of powdered sugar, Beat the whites to a froth and stir in the sugar. Bake the pie first, then spread on the meringue, and bake only five minutes. Now, lemons are not native to the United States or even to North America, but they certainly took off here. And that's something I was reminded of when you were talking about apple pie. For our colonial foremothers in the United States and Canada, North America in general, was such a fruitful nation. California and Arizona produce 95% of the entire U.S. lemon crop, wow. which I think is amazing. Okay, now let's talk about limes and key lime pie. So the key lime dates to a period when the Florida Keys were commercially producing, and this is like 1913 to mid-1920s. The key lime era began after a hurricane effectively destroyed commercial pineapple production, and according to the Oxford Companion to Food, ended the same way with a devastating hurricane in 1926. Based on what I learned about key lime production in the Florida Keys, I was totally expecting a story about a food marketing campaign drawing on a romantic vision of how key lime pie reminds you of drowsy, sun-drenched days on the beach. And I was both right and wrong. Key lime pie is probably really the offshoot of the magic lemon cream pie, which was a recipe published by Borden, makers of sweetened condensed milk, in the early 1930s, and commonly attributed to Jane Ellison, who was a fictional character invented and marketed by Borden starting in the 1920s. Very much like our beloved Betty Crocker, Jane was there to offer recipe suggestions, help you figure out why something wasn't working, basically to be a face of the company. I'd never heard of Jane Ellison before. I'm actually fascinated. It's interesting how much Betty Crocker took over as mm. this household name and this vision of this person. And yet we have this basically identical component that seems to have been lost to time. And if you've missed that, any of that story, please go back and check out our Green Fortunes episode, also our Kitchen Technologies episode, or What's in Your Pantry. We've talked about Betty before. She's fantastic. Her history is phenomenal. But back to Jane. Maybe it's the name. It just doesn't quite sound as you know, it doesn't because you it conjures like this Jane Eyre who I wouldn't picture her as warm and yeah, fuzzy necessarily. Yeah. yeah. Little no nonsense where you can imagine a Betty being warm and friendly. And right. it's basically the predominant image that we have of Betty Crocker. Exactly. So Jane's recipe is shockingly simple. This is the recipe for magic lemon cream pie. 
basically you blend condensed milk, citrus juice, citrus zest, and egg yolks and pour in a baked pie crust. This is exactly what we've heard before with the lemon cream recipes. And then you whip egg whites with sugar into meringue, cover the pie filling and bake in a moderate oven until brown, which by the way is 350 degrees. This method is fascinating because without the preliminary cooking, the mixture resembles a cream custard. And that's actually because the citrus juice and the egg proteins curdle and thicken. Baking it merely pasteurizes it and then sets the meringue that you've put on top. So then I asked myself, well, then where does key lime factor into this? In Brave Tart, iconic American desserts mm-hmm. by Stella Parks, she suggests that perhaps home cooks in Florida merely substituted lemons with their other local ingredients, namely limes. The Miami Herald published a recipe for tropical lime chiffon pie in its April 15, 1933 paper, and any earlier published recipe has yet to be found. So key lime seems to really be uh, a 1930s invention. Well, published version. Right. I do have to say that. So that said about the lack of a published pie recipe, there is a fantastic story from Key West about William Curry's Aunt Sally. She was a cook in his household. He was a millionaire who built a huge mansion in, in the Keys in 1855. And she allegedly learned the pie recipe from sponge farmers who famously kept canned milk, limes, and eggs on board of their boats. William Curry was a millionaire ship salvager who built a mansion known as the Curry Mansion, and he brought canned goods, including Borden's condensed milk, to the Keys because until 1930s, and there was no refrigeration in the Keys. And so by bringing in canned goods, folks were able to have milk and things that they actually probably wouldn't ordinarily have had. Now, there's no super solid evidence of Aunt Sally or Aunt Sally's recipe. The story is really hard to validate, but it is very well known and widely told as being the origin for key lime pie. Regardless of its origin, key lime pie has gained profound popularity in post-World War II Americana. Uh, In 1965, legislation by Florida State Representative Bernie Pappy Jr. was introduced to create a version of a control appellate, wherein anyone advertising a key lime pie that did not actually use key limes would be fined $100. The bill did not pass. So despite the fact that the Key Lime $100 fine bill did not pass, there was a Florida statute that passed in July of 2006 that declares Key Lime Pie to be the official Florida State Pie. So it is official now, but you can eat it and make it without using Key Limes. You will not be fined. Well, that's good. I'm going to go make myself a Key Lime Pie, and I'm going to start thinking about a, a really important topic in our next episode. We're going to explore what it means to be a good host. I think sometimes we forget that there is an art to being a host or hostess. What is the hallmark of a good host? How do you know your guests are having a good time? And is that the most important thing? For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat.com. And join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 
it would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing. We'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. Obviously.